0: He's not
1: dead. Danny LaRue is back on the program. It it was fun getting some guests in to to change things up, but you are back. Would you like to tell the people where you were?
2: Well, it it was funny because the trip changed around a little bit due to the ongoing nationwide strike in france um originally the second the second week was going to be all in paris but that changed so the o- overall itinerary ended up being see if i can get this right off the top of my head paris strasbourg cologne london paris amsterdam frankfurt paris it was awesome fantastic
1: what was the best city and what was the biggest highlight of the trip
2: best city i i loved amsterdam i, I really did enjoy i enjoyed the people and it was interesting because it was the least christmasy of any of the places that was a part of how this trip happened. Um, and I think the thing that was really special for me originally, and I mean, yeah, if it hadn't burned, Notre Dame would have been this, but the the cathedral in Cologne, like I've never been to Europe, period, but going to one of those super old European massive cathedrals was a really cool experience. And uh, and just to just to kind of get the sense, there was this beautiful thing that they said there about how it took 600 years to build that cathedral, and so that doing so was an act of faith for the people who built it because they knew they were never going to see it done and that was something like as an american so are so many of our like really cool buildings are just young to get that sense i was really blown away by that
1: yeah well the way things are trending here in california it will take 600 years to build anything so that's true uh we're uh we may experience that soon enough uh all right, let's talk a little NBA basketball with the Dallas Mavericks. We're going go in alphabetical order here. West, 15 and 60. They sit at 19 and 10, eight and five in their last 13. Third in net rating in the NBA. They actually underperform their point differential by about two wins. As of now, one way to do that is to blow a 30-point lead against Toronto. We'll talk about that. Uh, first in offense, almost two points per 100 better than anyone else per cleaning the glass. And 15th in defense, they project for 53. Three wins and they appear very likely to make the playoffs. They've weathered the Luka Doncic absence pretty well. Looking like he could return on Thursday. He did a pretty substantial workout off that sprained ankle before the Toronto game, according to Tim McMahon. Much has been talked about with Kristaps Porzingis still shooting the ball pretty poorly. They they had that big upset win in Milwaukee. When he went four of eight from three on Monday, drained a bunch of really deep threes. I think all four of his threes were twenty eight feet or further. He he made the Bucks switch up. They had to guard him with Giannis. They had to take their big rim protector off the floor. So he does uh, really have an effect offensively. Teams are always going to guard him. Not very efficient, but you end up focus on what he's been able to do defensively for this group.
2: Yeah, one of the questions that we had wanted to. Answer with Porzingis this year, and and obviously he's not playing the straight five with Dallas, but he is playing center more often than as a New York Knicks back before he got injured all that time ago. Was that Porzingis was always an effective rim protector in terms of opponent field goal percentage around the rim when he was nearby? But how would that change when he was contesting a higher amount of shots? And so this year, Porzingis is contesting six point nine shots at the rim per game. That is the eighth most in the NBA between Carl Anthony Towns and Jared Allen. So that's that's a lot, you know getting up there, and opponents are shooting about 46% on those contested shots by Porzingis at the rim. That is the lowest field goal percentage for defended by anybody in the top 10 by more than 3%. So that's a big difference, and there are a lot of guys more in the 50s, and he's at 46%. And so that is one piece of the question, is that in those shots, when he's standing there, opponents don't shoot very well. But As we know from Gobert and a bunch of other people, the more interesting question is how does having somebody like Porzingis on the floor affect an opponent's shot distribution? And the early numbers there are also positive for the Mavericks right now opponents are shooting 34% of their shots at the rim when he is on the floor. That goes up to 37 when Porzingis is not. So that's a, a meaningful shift. But also, opponents are making 58% of their restricted area shots when Porzingis is on the floor, and that jumps all the way to 65% when he sits. So one of the biggest differences in the league, are 87th percentile in terms of opponent effective field goal percentage on off with Porzingis and while some of that is also you know correlated factors like Dallas having better defenders in their starting lineup than their bench lineups I I do think that you can say that he's making a material effect so far and when I watch them you see it too.
1: So one thing that's been a a big problem for Porzingis and i'm not sure this is going to be fatal because there are a lot of teams that don't really hit the offensive glass at all but in those frantic moments at the end of a game it can be initially is his defensive rebounding and he might be the worst seven footer i've ever seen at boxing out and tracking the ball on the defensive glass at so both those things are really bad there's a play against toronto late in the game ronde Hollis jefferson who he's got a, eh, about 10 inches or so on shot goes up hollis jefferson is behind him all he has to do is just turn around and put his butt into him and he's got a seven foot three wall between hollis jefferson and the ball instead he doesn't ever even turn around and put his butt into the guy he just is facing away from the basket and just grabs him i guess he thought he was face guarding him i don't understand what he was doing and the ball goes goes right where he could have just grabbed it if he had turned around and because he was grabbing hollis jefferson he gets called for a loose ball foul uh, another play where he ended up losing the ball out of bounds he just was incredibly slow to react and he did have a big play late where he, he was able to block a layup attempt uh, during clutch time but it really i don't understand how he could be this bad as a, a defensive rebounder and a box out guy even if he's not going to get the defensive rebound to at least potentially enable his teammates to get it, he just doesn't think about boxing out it's it's pretty remarkable um
2: yeah that's a concern uh something i want to mention also with the mavericks Part of what they've looked, why, why I have been impressed with them without Luca, is not only that they're two and three, which you know, I mean, we could have seen it be worse considering how large a role he has in their offense. But they've played the five best teams in the Eastern Conference for those five games, and they beat Milwaukee in Milwaukee. They won at Philly, and then Miami, Boston. They they lost both those games in Dallas, but then also the the game that they should have won against the Raptors. Obviously, I mean, you're up yeah. Well, that and 30
1: Miami quarter. game went into overtime. That's as right,
2: well. it did. Yeah. So, I mean, to, to go through that that stretch, even with Luka to have a positive net rating to win two tough road games, I mean, that, that looks good. And I, you know, I, I I still am not on that, like, oh, Dallas, they're going to give they're gonna give the best teams in the West some trouble in the playoffs. But to me, making it through this kind of thing pretty clean, and I mean, obviously how well Luka's played, like, they're a playoff team. I, I think that's pretty unambiguous at this point.
1: Well, the other thing, too, you might say, ah, oh, you know, they're 109.5 offensive rating, that's pretty average. Defensive rating, that's pretty average. You know, without Luca, well, those are what, maybe like five of the seven best defenses in the league that they just played against. And so. Without their I,
2: best I, offensive player, too. So.
1: Right, exactly. And now a big part of why they've been so good is that their bench without luca still uh, has killed people and and maybe that is a if you're splitting hairs for the mvp conversation that we're going to have at the end of this month um probably i guess early next week that'll be an interesting one to to talk about um obviously with the missed time he's not going to be my mvp this year or or, or this month the way he was last year uh year month yeah very briefly want to talk about that toronto game though just because it's an interesting game not even necessarily apropos to dallas as much dallas led 83 to 53 think and gave up a 48 to 14 run at Toronto, went up by four. They did actually fight back and took a lead at one point until the Raps got a really nice play. on After a timeout, they got the two for one. They basically spread it up, created their own fast break, set a screen right at half court, and then Kyle Lowry set up Chris Boucher for the dunk. Chris Boucher, by the way, you remember how I used to talk about how like Pat Connaughton pump fake him Boucher is like Pat Connaughton on steroids with the way he just sprints after guys shooting three-pointers and like jumps off of one foot and tries to block he did get uh I think Seth Curry in the corner at the beginning of the comeback but so yeah just uh if he's coming at you pump fake sidestep shoot the three he's gonna fall into the stands um the Raps used a 1-2-1-1 press with ronde hollis jefferson at the top of that and boucher back protecting the room and one thing that they did i don't know if this was intentional or not but it's it's a good thought especially if you're trying to be in comeback mode remember the raps also came from 20 down against philly with that press uh, as well is once they the mavs got out of the trap they took non-shooting fouls to stop the fast break uh and they i think they did like two or three of those and that if the mavs get fast breaks and dunks there maybe it's a different game so you can kind of limit your downside with the trap and still get the upside of potential turnover they forced seven turnovers in the fourth quarter by just using those euro files basically but you're also getting the advantage of having trapped first and maybe forcing a, a turnover um yeah the mavs did really kind of collapse they lost their aggressiveness to some degree uh, against the trap they also were really trapping in the half court which was very effective jalen yeah, brunson, I, I, in brunson that's
2: what i was gonna say yeah. i think i think he's the he was the biggest culprit to m- in my eyes of, of- he was because, just too
1: slow against that toronto athleticism
2: right and, and something you, you brought up ronde being at the kind of the tip of the spear pascal siakam was unavailable in this game i love that nick nurse does that and that's i mean a lot of college teams that run presses have it you have an athletic guy at the top because that really seals off the penetration
1: yeah and worth noting that R- ronde Hollis jefferson now was involved in maybe the two biggest comebacks of the last year or so he was out there playing center when in that d'angelo russell 44 point game i think he had 27 in the fourth as the that's beat the Kings in a crazy comeback on the road.
2: Well, and to give people context on this, per ESPN stats and info, this was the first 30 plus point comeback in a regular season game since almost exactly 10 years ago, December 21st, 2009, Kings over the Bulls, and only the third in the last 20 years. I believe the other game involved the Mavericks too. I think it was a Mavs Lakers game.
1: It did. So- I watched that game in fact in uh the 0203 season, which was interesting because that was the year that Dallas, I think they started like 13 or 14 and oh that year and ended up winning 60 games and the lakers were the three time champions but there was still a feel of inevitability like oh yeah this the lakers turned it on the mavs aren't for real blah blah and then lakers ended up losing to the spurs in the playoffs before those teams could ever play but yeah now i watched that whole game i remember it very well uh the lakers coming back on them all right let's do a quick break here and then we'll get to the Man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 2015. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct to consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one size fits all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then girlfriend, now wife, And I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. Man, I just love... here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us anyone who's seen our youtube videos knows that i don't wear formal stuff all the time so when it's time to dress up rather than dress down i highly recommend inochino they were the official outfitter of my wedding i got my tux from there all my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well i felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because Denver Nuggets all right that was about 12 minutes on the Mavs maybe we can be a slightly more efficient with the 20 and 8 Denver Nuggets 8 and 5 very interesting 8 and 5 in their last 13 but they've won six straight they had a 2 and 5 stretch and then won six straight seventh in the NBA with a 5.3 net rating 15th on offense that has been on the come recently second in defense and project for 56 wins uh talk a little bit about this six game winning streak They have had 37% offensive rebounds during that time leading the nba with a 119 offensive rating shooting 37 percent from three which is better than usual but they're not doing it necessarily with hot shooting they're still only 27th in three-point attempt rate in that stretch they take very very few three-pointers but the other thing that's driving that net rating and this is partly related to the offensive rebounds and to put that in context again 37 percent offensive rebound that's like eight percent higher than the league leader has been these last couple of years that's like you know league leaders back in like the 90s it was 37 percent offensive rebound uh they are shooting 66 percent of the restricted area during this stretch and taking the six most attempts there in the league and consider that they play one of the slower paces in the nba as well that, that's a very strong number so maybe the offense is in fact starting to come around and they haven't played a murderer's row schedule here so far but uh and of course they when they did play the lakers lebron didn't play last night
2: so Yeah, and they won that game cleanly, and you have to give them credit for beating who's in front of them, but it is a different team that was in front of them than you would expect. We want to talk a little bit about Will Barton and we're mostly going to focus on offense, but I just wanted to, one of my curiosities so far with, I think they're kind of billing it as RPM 2.0, that, that Kevin Pelton wrote a nice piece, kind of breaking that down about a week ago. I read while I was in Europe, but right now, Will Barton is actually number two in defensive RPM behind the one and only Chris Dunn. And I mean, I think there's some of that is just the on-off noise and everything else like that, but it kind of is a, is a part of him having an, a very interesting season.
1: Yeah, and remember last year was the last year he had that tournament groin in the second game of the season had to have surgery really didn't come back until January and had a few moments in the playoffs but you'll recall he even lost his starting spot to Tory Craig and then I think I think he got it back actually in the Portland series but Craig was uh, enormous in that Spurs series now Craig can't even get in the rotation because Barton has played so well that's been a part of why they had this massive log jam between Beasley, Hernan Gomez, Porter and Craig on the wing. You could kind of throw Jeremy Grant in there as well. But so what's changed for Barton? Well, the thought of barton is well he's this pick and roll ball handler right he is this six man thrust into the starting lineup type of guy who can create some shots for you he's not that efficient and and when he has been the individual creator the last two years that he has just not been effective over the last two seasons almost identical numbers in the pick and roll about 0.68 points per possession that is atrocious uh offense for a, a pick and roll ball handler and then where he has really shined this year has been as a spot-up guy Shooting incredibly well. 67% e field goal in spot up situations that include uh, drives off of spot ups. And then transition, uh, pushing the ball. They don't do a ton of transition, but he's one of their big guys. Jamal Murray, Gary Harris aren't necessarily going to push the ball in transition. He's probably their best guy at that. His efficiency is not unbelievable, but it's still really good when you compare it to your normal half court uh, efficiency. So it's been more of, and then as a cutter, he's been extremely effective uh, as well in his limited amounts there. And really, you look at the number of possessions that he's had, a lot more of these supporting possessions as you'd expect for him uh, playing the three alongside some of the other threats that they have. Uh, And that's where he's been able to be effective offensively.
2: Right, and you brought up the the spot-up shooting. I mean, a big part of that is that he's... 40% Forty percent from three this year as a career, thirty-five percent three-point shooter. That's probably a little rosier. His career best is thirty-seven percent, but this isn't even the highest like per per possession three-point rate that Barton has ever had. And something else that's important for him, even though Barton's free throw frequency hasn't gone up even to the like even to the levels where he was at, an early, at another late part in his career, he's getting to the basket more often. So last year Barton only had took twenty-two percent of his shots around the basket, and he'd been tipping been ticking down over the last couple years as a denver nugget all the way up to 32 again this year and just shifting those proportions around can be a really big differentiator even especially when that coincides with his three-point shooting being hot so far
1: yeah not hot from three gary harris 35 what he was built on was that he was this 40 three-point shooter really since the start of the last year that has not been the case remember he struggled with all those injuries last year as well this year the nuggets have been very very healthy to date uh um, Uh, And then also, I mean, Gary Harris, to me, needs to be shooting a lot better than 49% from two. Like, he made his living as this great cutter, great finisher, getting to the rim, uh, just not taking, to me... Uh, the right kind of shots, and you know they don't have a ton of spacing. It's it's totally different for them with Millsap out there. He's an upgrade, but it, it doesn't come as easily offensively necessarily. And then Jamal Murray, another guy. Just the hope was coming out of Kentucky, he was going to be this awesome shooter, he was going to come off of screens, he just shoot forty percent from three, and that just simply hasn't been the case for him. uh Part of why I was so high on him as a prospect was I thought he could do that. And if you just threw in that level of three point shooting with the other aspects he's added to his game, I, mean, I think. Other than shooting, he's developed as well as you could have hoped as a prospect. But you know, if he's going to be this thirty-three percent three-point shooter, doesn't get a ton of volume up from out there either. It's just it's going to be hard for him to live up to that big max contract. But you know, still twenty and eight for the Nuggets, and they're right on pace to, to be in that mix uh, for a top four seed.
2: A team not in the mix for that top four seed. Oh,
1: you stole my transition, but that's fine.
2: <laughs> the gold, the Golden State Warriors, <laughs> six and twenty-four, three and ten in their last. 13 after a rousing, not rousing, win against the New Orleans Pelicans, which I will talk about a little bit because I was there, a negative 9.8 net rating is still dead last in the NBA, dead last in offense, 26th in defense, 538 projects them to win 22 games, which would be last in the Western Conference, and they are not making the playoffs. A couple pieces of injury news at the outset, Eric Pascal left the Pelicans game with a knee injury. Fortunately, it is not serious. He had a clean MRI, is listed as questionable for their game Monday against the Minnesota Timberwolves, but he also also, uh, practiced, I believe, on set, on the weekend. So that's a good sign that he's going to play. Kevon Looney is still making his way back physically. He has been barely in the rotation as he's getting back into shape. Hasn't looked good physically. And then, largely, I would assume, due to the 45 day requirement on two day contracts, Kai Bowman, who was doing a really nice job as their backup point guard, is back in the G League. They actually were able to get some extra days on Damian Lee because he hurt it, because he got, got hurt. But Kai Bowman's getting a little bit close. And now, they They've had to rely on other people, including Jacob Evans, who has not been the most inspiring backup playmaker, even though they've gotten some from other guys like Alec Burks has done better than I expected.
1: Yeah, he's the new Sean Livingston, except he can't go by anyone. He can't do anything in transition. His mid-rangers don't go in, and he has zero athleticism. Other than that, he's the new Sean Livingston. Uh Yeah, he's taking a lot of mid-rangers, and it is uh, not going too well. Uh, The other thing I wanted to talk about is, even with... D'Angelo Russell back. And, you know, they don't like, you look at this team, they're not like pathetic anymore. Like, they, this is basically the team they were going to have at the start of the year, except without uh, Steph Curry. I do believe that there's something to the idea that Steve Kerr is not really capable of coming up with an offensive scheme that's going to work well without Steph Curry. All this movement stuff, and certainly without Clay Thompson as well, all this movement stuff, it's really based on having these guys with gravity. 25 feet from the bucket and they move it around a lot there are just so many possessions even now I mean split cuts to nowhere I can't forget who tweeted at me split cuts to nowhere is the uh, story of the 1920 Golden State Warriors but they run these actions and there's just okay wow that's great that you're running around but you're not actually doing anything that's threatening the defense and drawing two people to the ball and they're just still in that shell and then you end up taking a mid-ranger so and Russell to me even when you compare his effectiveness to that group that he was starting with in Brooklyn at the end of the year and when you look at the talent on the floor like I don't think this Warriors team is any worse than that but they're still playing 30th in offense and I don't think Russell correct me if I'm wrong here I I don't think the numbers are like that much better when Russell is on the floor and and he should at least be able to provide more floor raising than being 30th in offense but i just don't think that you know whether it's uh, wanting to move the ball more just not having guys standing in the right space not having a, a great understanding of spread pick and roll not being able to have an offense without these great passers and decision makers that they've had in the past like iguodala and draymond and, the, and livingston and those guys uh it just doesn't it seems to be much less than the sum of our parts and really it's kind of been that way throughout the Kerr era as you've talked about in the past
2: yeah the numbers on what you what you said about Russell, one Oh three, four offensive rating when he's on the floor and a very similar, I think it's a, if I'm reading clean the glass correctly, a one Oh four, a one Oh four two, when he's, when he's off the floor, it might be the other way around. It's, it's a, it's just, it's under a point per point per hundred possession. So it's not that big of a difference. Um, And yeah, that was something, one of the big questions that I had going into the season was the Warriors have always in the career and before had a below average Offense relative to the year that it had happened with Steph Curry off the floor. And so there was the question about whether this could be the first year that was not the case. It totally will not be the case this year that they will go over that over that threshold. They're well below it, 103.4. And some of that is, I think, the scheme stuff. Also, some of it is that they've had some really bad second units or just been top-heavy teams, and they didn't always even stagger yeah. Durant and Curry. Yeah,
1: I, I mean, they have been very low on shooting Yes, beyond Steph Curry and Klay Thompson and Kevin Durant. Throughout this whole time period, but I mean, I, th- this is why I was gonna give, willing to give Kerr a pass before. But this year, I think they—you know—they they have enough that they shouldn't be this bad.
2: Yeah. Uh, so something this will kind of be the bridge to talking about the Warriors Pelicans game. Warriors won that game close and a lot of it was D'Angelo Russell. It was D'Angelo Russell and Brandon Ingram, former Lakers number two picks going mano a mano and Russell's shots going in and Ingram's not as much though he did get to the free throw line a couple times. And so I recorded with our friend Anthony Slater after the game and we were talking about D'Angelo Russell's clutch usage and I hadn't dug up the stats and it it, it stunned me. D'Angelo Russell has the highest clutch usage in the entire league. 49.2% usage. Kyrie is next to just about 44%. And Russell is number two of the 10 most used players in crunch time in true shooting. The only guy above him is Joel Embiid, a ridiculous 73% true shooting in crunch time. And of course, that doesn't include turnovers and other things like that. Harden's over 60% and D'Angelo Russell is. And then most of the other guys who are in the top 10 in usage are actually below 55%. You could think of that because of better defenses, keying in on opponents and all that kind of stuff. So I I thought that was really remarkable that Russell, in the midst of all this and I mean there have been some wins in there that he's having a a really effective clutch season in a very small sample size to be sure
1: let's turn to the Pels now this is interesting actually I was thinking about it with the news that Drew Holiday might be uh they might be willing to listen to offers for him a D'Angelo Russell for Drew Holiday trade would be fascinating on a number of levels presumably the Warriors would have to throw in some more assets uh, for that but I think Russell doesn't seem to me like a Griff kind of player griffin the new orleans uh, executive vice president of basketball operations um but to get russell and lonzo ball and brendan ingram all back at the same team uh, they never all played together but all three of those number two lakers picks on one team uh, along with zion williamson i do think russell wouldn't be a terrible fit in new orleans now their defense uh, wouldn't get any better to be sure
2: well yeah i mean the idea of russell as a pick and roll player with zion because you can't switch zion that would be pretty i think that could help d'angelo yeah. a lot yeah
1: and, and i like the idea of you know usually guys who are pick and roll players who like to shoot it and don't get all the way to the rim they're better with a dive man where the guys who like to get all the way to the rim are a little bit better with a pop man so you're not kind of inhabiting the same space uh but you know that and maybe the appeal there like is just to get a guy who's under contract for three more years in new orleans where you're not necessarily a cap space destination um Pell's fundamentals here before we talk about your observations from them in, in that game against new orleans 7 and 23 they completed a 13 game losing streak and then finally won one in minnesota has simply been a terrible home team uh in the first of those games that carl anthony towns missed with a sprained knee 7 and twenty. 23, uh, 1 in 12 since we last checked in on them. So yeah, there's actually a time when their overall stats weren't that bad. They'd played a tough schedule, but it seems like they've lost hope. 20th in offense that is really really gone down you remember early in the league they're in the top five but that was with some unsustainable shooting uh, that's the biggest thing that's really made it impossible the defense has gotten slightly better at 25th still projecting for 33 wins for 538 and nine percent chance of the playoffs so Zion Williamson is starting to do a little bit of on-court work I still my projection would be late January for him as a return they're going to take it very easily especially now since they're totally out of it There was the news from Mark Stein that uh, Drew Holiday, they're at least listening to offers on him. And uh, what were your thoughts seeing them Friday night against Golden State?
2: It it was kind of a mixed bag. I mean, the reason the the game was even close. Well, they lost
1: to the Warriors.
2: (laughs) Well, yeah, it was. But at the same point, like one of the big reasons they lost, and this is a correctable thing, was that New Orleans wasn't using, you know, uh, there's talk about Gladwell's, you know, David strategies. When you play the Golden State Warriors, teams need to be using Goliath strategies which is don't turn the ball over don't over help don't over press and realize that you have a massive talent advantage and that was really how this game got out of hand early the Warriors went out to a big lead was New Orleans was forcing the ball a little bit too much the Warriors were getting transition and they were getting easy buckets in transition so that was keeping their offense float their their half court offense is is abysmal and so if you can keep them out of it and it's not like New Orleans was giving giving up those turnovers on incredible passes that just like narrowly missed a guy's hands they were just being a little bit sloppy a little bit loose with the ball. And then defensively, I talked about the the glide strategy of not, you know, threat assessment is usually the term I use, but not over aggressively helping and freaking out and and just realizing, okay, if that guy has the ball and he has a little bit of space, he's probably not going to kill you. And then that created open looks for various members of of the Warriors, especially when they could get it to a big man for like a dunk. Marquise Chris had a couple of dunks that were easier than they should have been. And so those were both concerning and I've not been as gung-ho with blaming alvin gentry for all of the pelicans foibles i mean the combination of injuries and kind of a, and a, a roster that is challenging to fit but some of that i do think you know because this is a team that was making young team mistakes but they do have a lot of veterans i mean they have especially with drew and jj and favors played in that game though jackson hayes got plenty of time and he makes plenty of young man mistakes though his balance is, is still incredible in person so that's one thing and then the other that i'm gonna have to keep an eye on i mean I've been a, a pretty big Lonzo Ball proponent, and I've held on that pretty far, but his reluctance to shoot, like, there were times where he would actually end up still taking the shot because he was left so open, but just waiting those two beats to do it, like, you can see how defenses use that to their advantage, and it's not quite as egregious as something like Ben Simmons, but it, it, it permeates the offense, and they, I, I wonder about, like, he, Lonzo is this interesting example of, like, guys who add a lot onto the table and other, Ways, but then can take certain things away, and that that could be a big problem.
1: Yeah, I, I still think back to when I thought this team's defense might actually be good with some of the talent that they had. And granted, that talent hasn't all been on the floor at once, but it really seems uh, that that ship uh, has sailed. Oh,
2: all one right, other yeah. interesting thing about this game. uh So it only happened very, very late in in the final minute. I think in the final forty five seconds. But the Warriors don't have a great group of perimeter defenders, and eventually, and I Glenn Robinson missed part of the game due to injury. They realized that the the Pelicans offense was basically Brandon Ingram trying to create one-on-one. So they put Draymond Green on him. And I thought Green did a good job. There was one time where Green got called for a foul. Kerr actually challenged it and lost the challenge because Green hit Ingram in the arm. But it was interesting that in that circumstance, Ingram was a little bit gun-shy. And he he ended up only getting to the free throw line, but did draw that foul. So I, I, I'm going to be interested in how, I mean, we've talked about how the Pelicans offense is going to change when Zion gets back. But just David Griffin has such, a, such an unusual challenge with talent. Talented pieces that might not necessarily fit together so when does he decide to move guys what things or maybe it's they're talented enough that's going to work like the the and not having enough time necessarily to evaluate all of that with zion potentially I, I agree with you that the timeline of late january seems reasonable to me well that happens to be right before the trade deadline so what does griff think that he has and what does he think can be moved
1: yeah, my prediction is that uh, the summertime maybe is when it comes to a head there. The Houston Rockets, 20 and 9, 9 and 3 since the last 15 and 60, a plus 4.9 net rating It's ninth in the NBA third in offense 16th in defense and projecting for 57 wins which would be the third seed Clint capella has a bruised heel but not supposed to miss time uh, unless uh, it gets worse ben mclemore has been pretty good we'll maybe talk about him uh, on a later episode he's got some pretty extreme splits but i want to talk about their game against the clippers the clips actually led 69 54 at one point and houston after giving up 69 points in the first half came out and really turned up the defensively I thought James Harden had one of the better quarters of basketball that I've seen he started off the quarter guarding Paul George and actually got through some screens uh, on George got a stop there he had a couple of steals in transition he's one of the best uh, at that stealing some of those long hit ahead passes uh, the Clippers really were trying to take it out of his hands though the box score from this game was crazy I think Harden ended up taking like 12 shots or something like that and Westbrook had 40 and he was I want to say he was 13 to 31 from the field going for from memory here uh the third quarter in particular was really Westbrook taking over for good and for ill I mean the difference in the pace especially now that Westbrook isn't the guy every time in the half court the way he is pushing the ball for this team is incredible and he's anytime he gets the ball after a miss it's going to be a fast break now that fast break could lead to him slamming the ball after the backboard off the backboard as he goes into two guys but a lot of times it leads to a foul a lot of times it leads to an open three i was a little frustrated that james harden very rarely actually runs with russell westbrook so they don't have they're only getting four guys into the fast break or three sometimes you know usually be two of their shooters and and then westbrook but uh Clippers, not an amazing rim-protecting team when Zubach is out of the game and Zubach got the the Keith Bogans in this one with Harrell playing like all like 16 minutes in a row, which is really, you know, that's something they may have to reevaluate in the playoffs. Uh, well, whether and and that play ties in
2: with one of the other storylines of this game is, well, I mean, we've talked about P.J. Tucker offensive rebounds for years, but the Clippers' defensive rebounding could be a big problem against a team like Houston.
1: Absolutely, because you throw in Westbrook, who loves to go to the offensive glass, And also another thing too, you say the Clippers... Don't really, aren't like a great transition team. So they're not the team that's necessarily going to take advantage of Russell Westbrook crashing the glass uh, and push it down your throats. Uh, George, Leonard, those are kind of more deliberate players. Patrick Beverly is not, you know, push it down your throat type of point guard. Uh, Lou Williams, also you know, a little bit more deliberate of a player. um Yeah, and Tucker, Capella, Westbrook, they, especially late, I thought the Rockets overall out hustled the Clippers, uh, especially in the second half. Um, when Westbrook is pushing it, you just you have to not follow him anytime he drives really but especially in transition when he's just like so out of control you really bail him out by following him he is a terrible finisher at the rim at this point in time and so by following him uh, on his way to the rim you really bail him out there if you can get any kind of a contest you know sometimes he's going to make it but generally uh, especially since he's not as explosive as he used to be but is still pretty explosive in a straight line you got to stop following him i thought that Patrick Beverly if these teams match up in a playoff series my over under would be like four and a half games that he fouls out of and Seth actually noted this uh last week that he just fouls so much and either commits fouls when the other team is in the bonus you know it looks great when he gets into guys but he just commits so many fouls and overall the between these two teams between Harrell and Lou Williams and Russ and Harden and Kawhi there are just gonna be so many fouls in a game between these two teams uh and a series between these two teams much as it was uh back in 2015 the last time these guys matched up different personnel obviously uh but between howard and and deandre jordan and hacka back then that was a a pretty ugly series if uh also a classic collapse by the clippers
2: well another thing that is kind of a big picture question if these teams go at each other in a series is that i think that the clippers offense and it being a little bit more static especially pj tucker can do a good job on Kawhi which which I would argue that he did in this game that it, it makes life a little bit easier on the Rockets and so they can they can kind of settle in this is also a question about the Clippers when they face the Lakers though obviously they beat the crap out of them on opening night is those letting those teams a little bit off the hook keeping matchups more stable keeping the ball moving I think it might actually help those defenses keep things together more
1: a few other notes uh, about this one Russell Westbrook taking technical free throws with the way he shot free throws the last couple of years is ridiculous he'd go 12 or 13 from the line in this game which was pretty good uh by the way i said harden he at one point he was like 5 of 11 and then he took five shots very late in the game he had a a very efficient uh 28 point night uh and westbrook was 13 out of 31 harden did have 10 assists they were really taking the ball out of his hands for most of the game uh the minute totals for the rockets westbrook with 40 remember back in okc he only played really about 34 minutes a game and granted his load isn't as high with houston but he's still pushing the ball up there i mean that's something to watch he also had eight turnovers in this game uh but his minutes are something to watch I mean, part of why he's supposed to be playing a little better is that he was coming off of uh, that knee procedure last year but houston not known for keeping the load off of guys and keeping guys healthy and uh his minutes will be something to watch capella 39 minutes pj tucker i mean that's just such an Man. I thought the matchup, the other thing I really focused on here was the individual matchups between some of these players, who can guard who. And you know, I thought Landry Shamet might have some problems. Obviously, Lou Williams, But they stick with this strategy of anytime Lou Williams gets matched up onto a score, they just go double team immediately. I thought Harden did a great job of passing out of the traps. So I mean, basically anytime they trapped him, the Rockets got a layup or a corner three out of it. Um, I thought Paul George, you know, we saw this last year against Damian Lillard on, on that iconic shot, but... And then I saw it also uh, against the Thunder yesterday. He's not the individual defender that he was back in his Indiana days. Um, He can definitely be beaten in in isolation. Uh, Shade Gilchrist-Alexander did it to him the other night. uh, And Harden, to me, was able to get pretty good looks uh, against Paul George uh, when it was a 1-1. I mean, there's even a time where he was matched up against George, where Lou Williams' man, Austin Rivers, went to set the screen and Harden waved him away. And then he went ahead and scored on George. He blew past him uh, for a floater. Um,
2: Uh, So we have it in there. The Clippers overall stats, uh, they're 22 and 10, 10 and five since the last 15 and 60, fifth in net rating, seventh in offense, seventh in defense. They're projected to win 58 games, one more than the Rockets, which will put them second in the Western Conference, and they're going to make the playoffs
1: thank you yes uh so a little little bit disjointed here we'll we'll get back in shape though it's always good for you to get that in because i could very easily just go on it and forget it um these teams are pretty much entirely healthy the only person not to play of note was Jamichael green who i do think has a role to play with the this clippers group the clippers don't move the ball that much and they are really kind of station to station on offense and that plays into the Rockets' hands. They're also not an incredible passing team. And so I thought especially late, Clippers were getting into the lanes. The corner three-point shooter, even when it was Shamit, uh, was wide open and they just weren't able to find him. They just got in among the trees and either took a tough mid-ranger or got it stripped or something. P.J. Tucker in an iso against Kawhi, pretty good job. Tucker, his weakness is his foot speed, but Kawhi is not going to blow by you. I, I think that's a pretty decent matchup uh, for Houston, uh, as good as you can get a uh, against Kawhi these days uh I thought Clint Capella was pretty good as a switch guy here as well these Clippers ISO guys don't necessarily have the speed that Curry and even KD had to beat up Capella in ISO the way it happened uh in last year's playoffs for example uh Lou Williams gets ejected early in the fourth quarter after he made what he thought was a clean strip and it's always the guys who are terrible defenders and know they are that and then the one time they actually make a clean defensive play and get called for a foul they get so mad about it because it's like just give me this one man like i i always lose on defense i finally win and now you're gonna take it away from me and so he ended up getting ejected um and i think that's all i got uh on that game from the other night it Good game, to be sure. I mean, it was a lot of yo-yoing. Clippers had a 17-4 run, which is immediately followed by a 15-0 Houston run uh, to take it 122-117.
2: Let's move to the other tenants of the Staples Center, the Los Angeles Lakers. They are 24-6. and Ten and four since the last fifteen and sixty plus seven net rating give, puts them fourth in the NBA, fifth in offense, eighth in defense. Five thirty-eight projects them to win fifty-nine games, which would be one ahead of the Clippers for first in the West. And of course, they're going to make the playoffs. It is worth noting that uh, we, we talked about this a little bit in the Denver section. They are in a three-game losing streak, but they were playing without Catavius Caldwell Pope and LeBron against the Nuggets. And thankfully, I mean, this considering the wonderful season he's been having, Anthony Davis had a had a scare. He looks like he hyperextended his knee a little bit. and he slipped on a wet spot in that Nuggets game. He did return to the game, though he played more more in it than I was comfortable with, but still good that he was able to come back because he's been so huge for them.
1: Yeah, if he had this knee scare, probably not really worthwhile to have him in the game, down 17 with five minutes left in the game against the Nuggets. Uh, LeBron James having the best distributing season of his career, averaging over 10 assists, I think this is the first time it would be uh, the case for him as an individual scorer though it's still i mean this is one of the i think i want to say yeah this would be his worst true shooting since his first season back in cleveland when he was really finding his rhythm again and also remember the league average true shooting was much worse at that time and he spent the first part of the year injured and also playing with deon waiters <laughs> uh but and you have to go back to 0708 again a season which was a much different situation much less spacing to find a a season where he's been this inefficient with his own offense still a little bit better than league average but it hasn't been the ridiculous level that he was at uh and so his ability to win one-on-one battles is not as high also because he has to distribute everything he hasn't been featured as much as a scorer he's actually on pace to tie the highest usage of his career since he left cleveland the first time uh, at 32.3
2: something else to watch with the lakers is He's still coming, you know, on, I still think of him as making his way back from the injury and also everything. And we're under 500 minutes for the season. But this has been a disappointing campaign for me so far for Kyle Kuzma. If you want to use PER, 10.2 so far this year using basketball reference, uh, of 14, 14 in both of his first two years. Also... You know the low, basically the lowest usage of his career, lowest true shooting of his career, and that's despite shooting 36% from three. So it's not one of those oh he's shooting 30%, percent i will turn around and he'll be totally fine. And a part of what's also concerning for me, and he's not like this heavy usage playmaker, but after you know you know decent decent assist numbers, you know being a decent distributor, not turning the ball over a ton, he actually is turning the ball over almost twice as much as he's assisting so far this year in about 500 minutes.
1: Yeah, well he's not known for his pass.
2: No, he isn't. But I mean, just not. turning Turning the ball over would be nice. No, <laughs> you know, gotta get yeah, it. Yeah, and also be, I the mean, worst kind of,
1: yeah. Also, the worst kind of your thought answer. of these score. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. Uh, it's kind of your thought of these score guys who who are gonna score an ISO some is, or shoot spot ups is, hey, at least they, they may not be setting things up for others, but they're not turning it over. So he's not holding up that end of the bargain, as you mentioned.
2: Right. And so it's, it's too early to make any pronouncements, but remembering that he appears to be the guy that the Lakers refused to include in all of the Anthony Davis trades and probably gave up some extra picks in order to keep Kuzma, eh, we'll see how that works out. But, I mean, obviously, the Lakers are having a fabulous season.
1: Yeah, it, it does. 24-3 uh, and three may have overstated things uh, a little bit uh, for them. They are going to be able to get uh, some home games here after a road-heavy portion of the schedule. They lost to the Bucks, trailed by 18 at halftime, got back into it briefly to the point where AD played 43 minutes. And Giannis played 32 AD. I thought he did a decent enough job one-on-one against Giannis. Giannis did go five of eight from three, but he's one of the better guys in the league to guard Giannis one-on-one. But of course, that's going to limit your rim protection. And with the Bucks' ability to space out the Lakers' true centers, it was a little bit of a struggle for them worth noting too that we haven't seen it as much only 32 combined minutes between mcgee and howard in this game so we did see davis playing more at center uh, than uh, we have in the past and you know the 43 minutes uh, was a ton lebron was playing with this rib muscle injury which caused him to miss the nuggets game that happened uh, in their previous game on tuesday he did not have uh, his best game either did have a triple double but it just wasn't as assertive offensively so you know no shame in losing to the Bucks at home I, I thought rondo really had a struggle for them also he was negative 11 in 18 minutes and you know it's it, he's going to get overwhelmed physically against a team with uh the size and athleticism of the Bucks. so I think that the Lakers are a really good team. I think they're going to be right in the mix, you know, in that 55-win type of an area. I thought the 24-3 and really overstated things a little bit. And as of right now, I do think the Bucs have a better team than them. And I would favor them in a potential matchup. Although, I will say, if the Lakers play well enough to get out of the West then maybe I might change my tune because they'd be playing so well to, to get there.
3: Yeah,
2: that's that's a really good point. And,
1: and I think also when you think about a finals matchup with the Bucks, I mean, you know, the Bucs are on pace for like 67 wins or something. They're on pace to be one of the greatest teams of all time in the regular season right now. But if you think about it, whoever emerges from that West Crucible, unless they're injured, they're going to have had to play well enough that you might think like, you know, they're going to give the Bucks a run for their money if in fact the Bucks emerge also. Well, and and, worth, and worth
2: noting them. that if the team is injured, they're probably not going to make it through that crucible so i would guess that the team will be healthy unless they like have a lead and just hold on for dear life like the warriors i guess kind of last year uh, let's move on to the memphis grizzlies they're yeah. 11 and 9 six and nines the last 15 and 60, 23rd in net rating, 24th in offense, 22nd in defense, 530 projects them to win 29 games, which would put them 13th in the West. But the bottom of the West is really interesting. We'll actually talk about that in a little bit. Only gives them a 1% chance of making the playoffs. But uh, where you want to start with this is is an interesting thing with Jaron Jackson Jr., one of our favorites, both of us going back to the 2018 draft. And at first blush, you could say, you know, a, a big man going from 36% 36% three-point shooting to to 40% isn't that big a deal, especially if you're thinking about his small sample size. But why this is a big potential sign for the future of the Memphis Grizzlies is his attempt frequency. Went from 3.4 per 36 minutes last year under J.B. Bakerstaff to 8.2 per 36 minutes oh, under Jenkins. And that is fabulous. Yeah,
1: I mean, he had a 9 out of 15 game in the last couple of weeks, and he's bombing it. We're seeing the promise that we saw in that very first summer league game when I think he was eight out of thirteen from three in Utah against the Atlanta Hawks, where he's shooting it on the move, he's even taken a few off the dribble. He had a, a forty-point game against the Bucks earlier. They didn't come close to winning, but you know he's the perfect archetype of that shooting big man who is going to have plenty to work with uh, against the Bucks. And they ended up having to put Giannis on him as as they did against Porzingis. So yeah, very encouraging there defensively. You might argue that he's regressed a little bit. uh He's either falling or in, in the, avoiding falling. He's not able to have the same impact the thought was that he could be a switch guy that hasn't necessarily materialized yet to really have it work uh he is able to get beaten out there he's not just this incredible move your feet guy and he hasn't mastered verticality he had a great defensive game against the warriors a couple of weeks ago but that's also against the warriors who have no spacing so certainly encouraging what he's been able to do as an offensive player considering his start to the year was a little disappointing as well he's really is ramping that up and the fit i mentioned before how having a guy like moran who loves to attack the rim, having a partner as a big who can space it out the way... Uh, that Jackson can it is really good. One thing I want to talk about uh, with you here is a uh, uh, Mr. Pick Protection Maven top six protected pick to the Celtics from the Jeff Green trade back in 2015 uh becomes unprotected next year. Does it make more sense because they're actually not that far out of the playoffs in theory? Does it make more sense to go for the playoffs this year and try to just surrender that obligation this year and just be done with it, or does it make sense to still kind of slow play it, make sure nobody gets hurt? keep everyone around 30 minutes like they are with Morant and try to take the step forward next year instead
2: it's I think a closer question than some may think and remember that with the current format of the lottery retaining a top six pick is actually very different than it used to be you know like so even if they have like the fifth worst record there's still a a pretty decent chance that they fall that you know there's a chance over 30% that they end up giving up the pick anyway and that's at fifth worst not even like sixth or, or something like that so the way I would probably play it as Memphis right now is give it another month or so. And if they're still in the mix, I wouldn't, you know, give up a ton of assets to move forward. But remember that one of the tools that, that Memphis has climbing in their front office at their disposal is that they can use expiring contracts to take on multi-year players. And so one way of doing that is to get take on a bad contract and get an asset. Yeah, we'll see how much desire there is to, to do that around the league this year. But another one is more of the kind of neutral value type of trade. And that would be trade an expiring contract. Iguodala is, is, is a decent possible example here. Or either they have a couple other guys just with all the moves that they made over last summer. And not necessarily get a bad contract contract, but just get somebody that the other team doesn't particularly want to pay. And maybe that sort of a thing, which doesn't really sacrifice too much of their flexibility, um, they can do that. And one guy I wanted to throw at you, I'm not sure if he's going to be on the market, but another way of doing that, instead of getting a guy who's under contract, is somebody who has restricted rights or something like that, is how would you feel about uh, Bogdan Bogdanovich, in the Grizzlies?
1: Well, so how are they getting him? Trading Iguodala?
2: Well, they have, they have a, he's, Bogdanovich makes like $8 million in salary, so you could get there a couple of different ways, whatever Sacramento's most but i mean if they if it works then by all means
1: yeah i mean i i don't think sacramento wants to just give up on bogdanovich for iguodala um who isn't going to want to stay there and
2: who's already used them as a leverage play before <laughs>
1: yeah uh so i don't know i i think the idea of trading for someone who could be a part of the future for this team there's something there but i don't know that someone like iguodala is enough for i mean part of the reason why whatever team would be receiving him would be trading this guy back to memphis so the reason memphis would want him, the same reason that the team receiving him would want him so i i don't see that as necessarily the option i think using their cap space this summer is probably the time because you're never gonna yeah i realize that th- this isn't like some awesome free agent market, but I do think that there's when you're not a cap space destination this is your best chance to actually get a pretty decent player that, and not have to overpay for him because there's so much so many limitations in the market as far as who has cap space over the mid-level exception so i think there are players out there this summer who could help them potentially take the next step they need something at the two they need something at the four who could fit next to jaren those are their main needs at this point and they probably uh tyus jones who they invested in as uh not been good you know they might want something else. uh another ball handler who can really do something off the pick and roll in addition to jaws. So those are their needs. I think that they could find something in that realm and that's part of why I was thinking that they really should take their foot off the gas this year, try to stay within that pick uh protection and then next year with the cap space with Moran and Jackson potentially taking a step forward to at least kind of sub all-star status that's when you give the pick up and hope that it's like the 14th pick or something like that so that that would be
2: well and and here's the other reason for it we talked about how the bottom of the west is more accessible to the grizzlies the bottom of the league is also very accessible to the grizzlies because a lot of the teams towards the bottom are either going to be better or going to try like the hawks are six and 24 they're getting john collins back the warriors are six and 24 they're presumably getting steph curry back at some point so if if the grizzlies take and the spurs i think will be will, will push beyond the grizzlies if the grizzlies take their foot off the gas the hornets don't Really have an incentive to tank, so I think they should be able to get in that range. And remember, the Cavs have been feistier at times too. So maybe if the Grizzlies can get to like the fourth worst record, maybe even better than that, then you also could potentially get a really good pick. And and with the lottery odds flattening out a little bit, if they could get to four or five, there's a chance that you lose the pick. But there's also a chance that they get really up in there. And then there are some guys that could be could be really beneficial, as you said, like building the long term talent base. This is probably their best shot, especially if, as you were just saying, the other component of that is you you if you're not going to have give up if you're not going to have it be really really bad next year then it's not as much of the risk of of giving up a pick to the to the Celtics you're not as freaked out about the unprotected stuff if you think maybe you'll be the 10th worst team in the league as opposed to being like the third worst or whatever let's transition to the Minnesota Timberwolves the Timberwolves are 10 and 18 they are 2 and 10 since the last 15 and 60 though the 10 part of that are consecutive which is real bad we'll talk about that in a minute their negative 2.8 net rating is 20th in the NBA they are 18th in offense 20th in defense but still even with that 10 game losing streak 538 projects them to win 36 games which would be ninth in the western conference gives them a 24 percent chance of making the playoffs but a big part of this is just how long are they going to have to play without carl anthony towns we're recording this on monday before their game against golden state warriors and as we record this carl anthony towns is questionable and i think it's fair to say that he is important to the minnesota Timberwolves' success
1: yeah fair fair I- is this the worst roster in the NBA without Tom? I don't, I wouldn't necessarily
2: right. say that they're I, I, worse than the Knicks from a from a god it's it gets it gets close but then remember think about just how putrid their spacing is i mean we talked about this with the knicks but the only guy on this team who can shoot is carl anthony towns
1: well and their defense has been 30th over the last few weeks yeah true maybe you could say it might get a little better without towns but yeah I, i i when you certainly if you just look at the talent it's the worst without towns i think that that's pretty clear to me um so towns has dropped off a little bit zach low has noted that his usage isn't as high as it was but he's still shooting 42 percent from three on 8.5 three-point attempts per game which is absolutely completely insane but they do have some issues <laughs> uh five through seven in minutes played on this team are jared culver still starting a point card Josh kogi and travion graham so you're probably always going to have maybe one possibly two of those guys on the floor well culver from three Akogi 29% from three Graham 21% from three Culver and Graham have the sixth and seventh worst true shooting percentage of anyone to play over 350 minutes and once again they're not like oh man we're creating all these shots these are such difficult shots no you're actually getting everything set up for you you, you should not be the on-ball guys. Shaz Napier, yeah, he shot it really well, right? Uh, thought he could. Last couple of years, been around forty percent from three. Can come in, can really help these guys as a backup player. Nope, twenty-four percent for three. Keelan Martin, uh, he's a two-way guy, but a uh, reputation as a shooter. You know, no one else is working. Let's let's get him out there, see how it works. Uh, he's twenty-one percent from three. Noah Vonley, 2014 draft. Everyone thought he could evolve into a stretch big. He was over 40% from three in college, uh, unlimited attempts. And yeah, you know, it hasn't worked out for him as a stretch big other places. But let's uh, let's give him a shot here. He's uh, 1 of 13 from three on the season jake layman has been still in a walking boot uh, with turf toe and he's never really been that great of a shooter himself the only guy really has been doing anything from three uh, teague has been shooting it all right and then keita bates job is 43 percent, but that's only 19 uh, of 44 so how do you get to shooting 32 percent overall as a team when you maybe have someone having the greatest shooting season ever for a big man from three well that explains
2: i do feel a little bit badly that the wiggins assance never got a 15 and six while it was occurring because now it feels like it's it's we, we, we talked about it we had like some mailbag questions yeah on but it. i never wow. really got that but he it's toning down again he's below average true shooting though still career high at 55 percent. and uh we'll see where the rest of the season goes something that i thought was interesting is that wiggins usage does not really change with carl anthony towns on and off the floor which is i think why andrew wiggins drives me insane because carl anthony towns is incredible and andrew wiggins is not
1: all right, the Pels, we talked about. Let's talk about OKC now. 15 and 14 over 500. Thund- 10 and Thunder 4 over,
2: baby. That's another one I had, but I didn't I didn't I'm not it's not my identity like the Hornets. But
1: that, that was a, well, that was the best bet that you had,
2: it, I think. number 3. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, they really had struggled in close games early in the year. That has totally turned around to the tune of what was it 26 and 20 or no 26 and 24 point comebacks at home against the bulls and grizz last week chris paul had a tour de force against the bulls hitting step back three pointers drawing bullshit rip through fouls in the bonus seth had a nice piece noting how chris paul basically does this twice as much as any other player drawing non-shooting fouls that become free throws when the other team is in the bonus He's really a joy to watch, let me tell you. Uh, But, I mean, they're looking great for the playoffs. 74% playoff odds per 538, projecting for 42 wins. And they are 13th in net rating, 17th on offense, 13th on defense shade gilgis alexander 32 point game in a revenge game against the clips although uh leonard did not play in that one i thought that he uh, really the additions that he's made to his game he doesn't get to the foul line a lot which is a little bit of a concern for me but he's like hitting step backs against guys i mentioned in the clippers section that he was able to uh, score some on paul george remains to be seen exactly how impressive that actually is george's numbers as an iso guy even last year david lock has pointed this out were not that great but one thing i want to talk about after going to the g-league showcase is the fate of Danilo gallinari for both me and the people i talked to it seemed that guy might be the most likely player to be traded in the entire nba but between matching salary for his 20 million the lack of teams that need him and might be willing to give up a first round pick to get him The fact that the Thunder could make the playoffs and that that's not completely meaningless in this market and that they're playing pretty well. And the fact that, you know, you could either maybe sign and trade him in the summer or because of just his lack of suitors at the number he's going to want, re-sign him and then do the delayed sign and trade with him. For all those reasons, I'm actually going to predict now that he's going to finish the season with the Thunder. What do you make of that?
2: I don't think I'd go more likely than not, but it's definitely way closer to make a bet on it right now no i don't think i i, I would need to think about it more. oh no not yet but gallo the other hard thing for teams i had brought up the idea and i still stand by this as a theory that teams without much spending power should look at getting players with bird rights because especially if the market is weak then maybe they can even get them at a, at a cheaper price basically they can do what you said the thunder could be doing and the challenge though with gallo and, and i thought this was well said is it's hard to get a matching salary for him especially Consider that the Thunder would probably want to shed a little bit of money in that deal, so they can get a little bit more breathing room relative to the luxury tax. So I could, I could imagine him staying around. That said, and I mean, considering the well, Thunder, well, so let,
1: let me ask you this: If you're the Thunder, would you know? the 47th pick in the draft and expiring salary be enough for you to want to move him or would no. you rather just hold on to him at that point
2: no i would i'd hold on to him at that point i mean but if we're getting into like the 30s and then a, pl- a young player who's like a lottery ticket but maybe a, not a terrible one like a decent lottery ticket then you start to get in the conversation i think that kind of deal could be out there but uh, yeah and, well,
1: okay so well so let me ask you this right a pick in the 30s this is a good team that's trading for him presumably to make it into the playoffs this year right yeah so, i haven't
2: looked to see if any good teams have a pick in the 30s they're, yeah they're usually none, one none come
1: to mind for me other than dallas dallas is what is one actually um yeah and that could maybe maybe that's what it is but they've got the golden state pick dallas does but um so so that might actually be one i hadn't thought of them as a potential suitor uh to because they they could use some real like knockdown shooting they don't really have any normal oh there there doors. is another one the hawks yeah.
2: pick is owed to either philadelphia or Boston i believe it would go to i think it would go to philly yeah
1: neither of those teams can match salary though oh that's true good point there
2: good
1: point. um so yeah maybe it's dallas maybe that's the one uh and if that pick is good enough i mean i don't know who you know dallas doesn't have any prospects on their team really that are expendable at this point in time you know maybe brunson though they love brunson
2: justin jackson Um, maybe
1: yeah i don't know if he i mean he he would play probably in in okc because they have no threes uh So yeah, interesting thoughts there. Um, Should we move to the Phoenix Suns?
2: Yeah, let's do it. The Suns are 11 and 18 three and ten since the last 15 and 60. They're 16th in net rating, 11th in offense, 19th in defense. 538 projects them to win 35 games, which would be tied for 10th in the West, gives them a 16% chance of making the playoffs. And while I mentioned earlier in the show that John Collins is going to make his debut imminently from his suspension, Aiton's suspension came first, so Aiton is already back.
1: Well, and then he immediately sprained his ankle and now he's been out again.
2: Yeah sorry so, i should say uh, return from suspension I'm-
1: yeah he, he uh he played against the clippers and then hurt himself late in that game so we haven't had a chance to, to see much they got completely blown out in that game he took a lot of mid-range jumpers it, it did seem like one of the concerns with him is just that he's allergic to drawing free throws and really doing the the big man stuff and he was just like taking mid-range jumpers the moment it it left his hands yeah that could be a decent shot for him in the half court but and he can get some stuff on the offensive glass as well but way too early to make any further conclusions about him he did seem kind of he's kind of ben simmons like and that he's huge but just the way he goes up around the basket doesn't necessarily draw fouls uh so yeah he's already been ruled out for tonight uh, against denver you remember when aaron baines we thought he was so important to what they were doing and then he he missed time and that coincided with uh, their downturn they have been horrible with him on the floor in december not all his fault i think he's still shooting he's not shooting the crazy way he was but he still has been a viable stretch big but for the season now they are actually 0.8 points per 100 worse with baines on the floor they're about eight plus eight with him on the court in that first stretch before he got hurt it's really been Ricky Rubio at plus 5.1 when he's on the court and negative 6.5 when he's off remember Javon Carter started the year well he's really fallen off Tyler Johnson's been kind of back in the rotation he's struggling mightily as well Ty Jerome 43% true shooting so far hasn't really been able to get going a ton uh, the hope was that he could be uh more of a, an assist guy that hasn't happened quite yet um he's played 129 minutes now in nine games so average about 14 minutes a game elio kobo in these games that rubio has been missing he's been starting also so well at least uh, uh, worth noting that they can't do anything with rubio off the floor but these are the kind of guys they had starting last year but rubio again much like baines uh, the health uh, is a major issue for him he, he plays kind of a rough and tumble well and, and also style.
2: rubio his capability as a passer we talked about how that's one of the ways the Suns have transformed this year and that they don't really have a replacement for that level of instinctual passing and the Suns have a, a, a notable stretch coming up they close the year and then start the next year with a west coast road trip they play the warriors in sacramento back to back then they play Portland and the Lakers on New Year on New Year's Day. And if they can go through that stretch a little bit cleaner, maybe that can give them some momentum and they have a a pretty favorable home stretch to start January. So if they can keep things afloat then, we've talked about how the bottom of the West is a little bit light. I'll feel more confident about it and I think they could do pretty well then.
1: Yeah, and they need that really to stay in it. They to be 11 and 18 with barely a negative point differential. They have been one of the more unlucky teams this season one thing this team does absolutely none of is hit the offensive glass when Eaton is out uh, he has 18% offensive rebounding in very limited minutes so far this year as we mentioned uh, but overall 28th in offensive rebound percentage so that might be a way that he really can help them some uh, when he gets back into it in talking around at the showcase uh, you mentioned this stretch kind of being critical for them coming up here there seemed to be a thought there in talking to teams who had talked to them that they are maybe looking to make an upgrade that they think they're a little bit closer as far as making the playoffs and being an impact team than maybe some people would believe and that they would be potentially a buyer i mean one of the reasons i'm foreseeing some issues on the trade market is that some of the teams you would have thought of as buyers like say the trailblazers are not good enough to really convince themselves that they're going to make noise in the playoffs but maybe a team like the suns uh, could be one of these buyers that we're looking for i mean it seems like they're just so many players in the trade market that teams would love to trade it could help teams and just there are not that many teams that want to give up that much so i think we will if we do see some players change teams the price for that if you are willing to be a buyer could be relatively low even low enough to where you know we might say all oh, the suns they're going for the ac blah blah well you know that does mean something in, in that market number one but number two if the price is low enough especially with their issues at backup point guard and at power forward There are upgrades to be had potentially for them. And so if all it takes is giving up your second round pick, that's going to be, you know, 44 this year, maybe you can really get some good value uh, with something like that. Uh, Okay. Portland is going to be Ben's team. We'll, we'll do them at the end. Sacramento. What are their fundamentals?
2: The Kings are 12 and 17, 5 and 9 since the last 15 and 60. Negative 4.2 net rating is 22nd in the NBA, 23rd in offense, 18th in defense, and 538 projects them to win 35, which will put them in that tie for 10th in the West. 538 gives them a 17% chance of making the playoffs. Bogdan Bogdanovich has missed two straight with an ankle issue. He is questionable for their game Monday night against the Rockets. But we're going to focus most of this on the returning Marvin Bagley. Returned, I guess.
1: Yeah, Bagley has been playing 84% of his minutes at center this year per basketball reference estimates. He'll usually play a few minutes in the first and third quarter with Rashawn Holmes, but then shift over to center pretty quickly. Has definitely not been as good as he was last year as of right now. The big difference is that his shooting around the rim has been extremely poor. Last year he shot 43% from floater range. He had a, a nice ability to take a couple dribbles in the lane, rise up for those lefty jump hooks he is now shooting 29% from that range this year and just watching him he doesn't seem to be getting quite the same level of looks as he was last year perhaps that is because he's playing more center and he doesn't have the size advantage in his matchup uh, those guys are getting their bodies onto him a little bit more it seems like he just has to kind of fight it up as opposed to just having the space to explode over the guy and then 69% at the rim last year 59% this year I think he's really been hurt by the difference in the Kings trend Transition game where last year, I mean, they were just one of the most dynamic transition teams that, that you're ever going to see. Whereas this year, that hasn't been the case. So, with Aaron Fox on the floor, they do it a little bit more, but still overall, one of the slowest paced teams in the NBA. So, I think that's part of the problem with Bagley's finishing. I mean, he's not a great feel finisher. He has good athleticism. When he's open for a dunk, he can get a lot of dunks. He can get alley oops. But if he does have a body on him, he's not, he's got kind of short arms. I don't think he has the biggest hands. He doesn't get great extension on his finishes one thing that is helping or could help i should say is that he's actually taken four or five shots since he came back with his right hand i think i i've watched pretty much every possession he had since he came back and my recollection is the i think he's missed every single one of those shots some of them not even close but they actually look like relatively smooth it was funny i thought oh well maybe the reason he's shooting more with his right hand was that thumb injury but no it was actually his right thumb that he had injured not the left thumb so it's not like he was like oh i'm gonna suddenly work on my right hand because my left thumb is injured it was actually the opposite um uh, but I am impressed with him shooting more with his right hand i think at least it's something that could start to happen for him if it goes in it'll really improve where he's at um
2: well and, and something else but i'm oh, sorry go yeah. ahead go ahead say what gonna no, say. no no please what so i i wanted to talk about the other part of this which is that i haven't really been impressed with him defensively and whether bagley's playing the four or the five more importantly if he's playing the five somebody who has his skill set could be viable if he's at least capable ideally above average maybe well above average defensively but I mean not that he is the sole culprit but when Bagley's been playing center this year Kings have a 118.5 defensive rating that is not good and remember they sucked defensively when he played the five last year too
1: yeah and it's uh, Holmes has been pretty solid remember that we've talked about this before but part of the reason dedman was signed was so he could play the four he wouldn't have this defensive burden on him and then dedman could space the floor for him offensively dedman is starting to get out there a little bit more now maybe we'll see that some more on the second unit but remember how how much of their success has been due to playing Bielitza and harrison barnes at the four so and he's just not better than those guys right now frankly and here's the other thing too right yeah maybe he's not that good offensively or i'm sorry maybe he's not that good defensively maybe you play him at center your defense isn't going to be that good but the thought is you get that back in the other end well right now he just hasn't been effective as anything other than a dependent type of player i mean his, his shooting has not been great from outside post up and isos he has 17 points on 30 combined possessions so the idea that hey this is a guy at the big position who's so good he can create offense will live with his defensive deficiencies. no that's not the case he's been transition he's been a role man he's, he's been okay in those areas but that's not a guy to use the number two pick on that's 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 a guy that you also generally those sorts of players are going to be able to defend really well you know offensive glass obviously is something that he's pretty good at too uh but that sort of you know tyson chandler archetype of player if he can only be efficient in those type of roles and he doesn't defend now you have a bench player you know that and sure he's just come back i'm not foreclosing on the idea that he could be more of a scoring threat with his own individual offense also you're you're a player like that might want to have more than six assists compared to 105 field goal attempts as he does on the season. So as much as we might say, hey, you know, we really wanted to see growth in these areas defensively and shooting, the bread and butter isn't good enough for him right now. Like he's got to be able to before we can even talk about him, how does he fit with everyone and stuff, he's got to have this value added as a guy creating stuff himself. And that hasn't been there. And his efficiency this year, his efficiency last year even was not that great. Like 57% true shooting. For a guy like him, it's not really that amazing. So Has not been a good start for Marvin Bagley, even if uh, with him shooting with his right hand more, uh, I can't call him Malvin as much. Should we move on to the Spurs?
2: Let's do it. San Antonio, 11-17 and overall, 5-6 and since the last 15-60. and Negative 3.4 net rating is 21st in the league, 19th in offense, 23rd in defense. 538 projects him to win 27, 538's been super low on them. That'll be 14th in the West and gives them an extremely low chance of making the playoffs. Maybe the most notable thing about San Antonio since the last 15-60 was that crazy four consecutive overtime game streak that they did the double overtime game against houston which was the whole silly thing about trying to contest the result sack cleveland and phoenix all of them were in san antonio and then that broke with a two-point game the one where they when they almost beat the rockets
1: well and then they also had the protest game where they yeah. came back from down 20 and then they blew a 20-point lead to the rockets only a couple of weeks later so but 5 and 6 they are playing a little bit better of late 538 projecting them for 27 wins and playoff odds of less than 1% they have played an easier schedule I disagree with that I and mean, you want to say oh they're out of it they're done I and mean, they were 11 and 14 at this time last year and they went on a big run now you can say that their shooting was unsustainable last year they don't have Bertans anymore their bench hasn't been killing people quite as badly Although, uh, and they were treading water with our starting group last year. And now I think DeRozan and Aldridge on the floor is something like, you know, negative six, negative seven net rating, something like that. Uh, so that's really bad, but especially given the fact that no one is running away and hiding do i favorite them to make the playoffs no but i'm not ruling them i would you know less than one percent to me you know this is a team that has defied my expectations many a time and yeah to say oh the spurs are geniuses they always get it right like that's kind of reductive but also given the talent on this team i don't think they're like so much worse than some of these other teams i could see them getting a little bit hot um but we want to talk a little bit about let's say they do blow it up this is also interesting that Lamarcus aldridge they moved his guarantee date up to january 1st for next year where he has 7 million uh, of about 24 million guaranteed so they basically have to waive them before january 1st it was posited that maybe they'll do that Uh, but I I don't see that it's also just not a Spurs move to do that I mean maybe you you could see them having a conversation with him and being like hey would you like to be bought out but I think no he'd probably rather get paid 24 million that he's not going to get elsewhere next season rather than 7 million um but let's say there is a blow it up you know Aldridge and DeRozan not on this team anymore they get whatever they're going to get for him you know maybe protected first in each case I highly doubt it's even that much frankly but you get something like that what is this team what does this core look like going forward without those guys around uh what do they have in the coffers as far as young players uh going forward do you feel good about that core or would they really need to augment it uh, significantly I-,
2: I think they would need to augment it the real concern for me with san antonio is that the pieces they would need to add because they have you know have Derek white Dejounte got his extension over the before the season started and lonnie walker so you know they have they have of a potential some elements of the guard rotation that I do like and depending on how they feel about Jakob Pertl he is going to be a restricted free agent this summer but it should be a very tepid market for restricted free agents overall and I'm not guessing that a team like the Hawks is just going to fall in love with Pertl and give him some sort of like Ashik-esque offer but so two things I want to talk about one San Antonio doesn't have a lot of flexibility for 2020, but almost all of their big money expires in 2021. So theoretically, then they could just kind of do one of those passive rebuilds for a year where they don't necessarily blow it up, but they just kind of keep things, keep things together. If Like, you know, you, you don't give up assets to dump guys, but if the teams want the players you have, then you do it. But then the concern for me, unless Samanich and Kelvin Johnson really live up to it, is that what the Spurs' biggest needs are, is that the three and the four, and they would have a little bit of salary flexibility, but salary, those are hard guys to get with that. And then they're not going to have great draft assets either. So I think it's going to be really hard for San Antonio to build up the base outside of the player good players the the potentially good players that they have on roster
1: well and the three maybe best guys that they have lighting walker who's had a couple of nice games he was big in that comeback against houston for example but walker Derek white and Dejounte murray all kind of do the same things and i don't think any of those three have just like so much juice as offensive guys that they can be a number one option you definitely can't play all three of those guys together very much i would say so they've got a long long way to go Uh, and the famous spurs development system has done well to get those guys to where they are and let's not forget those are all players who are drafted 18 or lower so even to be talking about them like that and you know we'll see with walker He's, he's uh might be early to really even be talking about him as a potential long-term starter but I still don't see the on-ball juice from those guys that you're really going to need to have a, a decent offense going forward here and you know as you mentioned Pirtle is just kind of eh, okay maybe lower end starting center doesn't have much potential to move beyond that probably not going to be a game-changing defensive player uh, I think he's kind of stagnated his development on that end so yeah they're I mean they're not as bad a purgatory as like you know the Pistons or something but it does certainly cast a little bit of light on all right, you know, you you got your Demar DeRozan last year, you made the playoffs, you got the 7th seed. you um if you'd played a real team, you probably would have got killed in the first round, but or at least a real number 2 seed. They took the Nuggets to seven and now they've taken a step back and you wonder what the options are going forward and it may the answer may be pain, just like anyone else, they've uh, long avoided that. They've been right to avoid it. They've uh, been the most successful organization in the NBA over the last 20 years, but the, the bell may be tolling for the Greg Popovich uh, at some point here.
2: Let's move on to the Utah Jazz, the Jazz are 18 and 11, 7 and 6 since the last time we hit them. Their net rating is 12th in the NBA, they're 21st in offense. 10th in defense and 538 projects them to finish sixth in the west with 48 wins and 97 percent chance of making the playoffs they're making it when you consider everything else
1: yeah it would be extremely difficult uh, for them not to mike conley had that setback looks like uh, there's no real timetable for his return hamstrings are tricky uh, (laughs) this is and this is another team that was really struggling and then they went on this five game win streak um only a 7.6 net rating against some pretty mediocre teams in that time so i don't think all of their issues uh, are solved necessarily and unlike in past years they really have well outperformed their point differential based on awesome clutch play.
2: They have, I mean, right now the Jazz have the league's best clutch net rating, plus 28.1 in 58 clutch minutes. Remember the NBA.com definition here is five points or closer within the final 5 minutes and that is fueling a 13 and 5 record in close games. And it's worth noting that you know, their 111.5 offensive rating is, is pretty good. That's 10th in the league, but they have an 83.5 defensive rating in those 58 minutes, which is absolutely incredible. So something I wanted to ask you was, because of Mike Conley's injury, they're starting a different five out there, and I wanted to to see how you're feeling about it.
1: Well, given the way that Conley was playing, this is probably a better group for them with Mitchell, O'Neill, Ingles, Boyan, and Rudy Gobert. This, you can see what the vision was for this team because the thought was all right we need to pick, get better at shooting open three pointers. well they are one of the best i think maybe even the best catch and shoot team now from three in the nba they have a 115 offensive rating during that five game win streak 62 true shooting leading the nba in that time most of it has been without conley they've got more size on the floor so given the way that conley was playing yeah starting either o'neal or joe ingles and getting more size and spot up shooting on the floor looks pretty good Conley is going to start when he comes back they need to get him going to reach an actualized version of this team but it's not shocking to me that they uh, have looked a little better now their bench is quite a struggle session Emmanuel Moutier is taking some subtle steps forward but backup power forward with Jeff Green and Yang has been kind of a sieve backup center they haven't gotten nearly what they could have hoped for from Ed Davis it definitely was that we worried hey you know without Derek Favors who obviously has had his own issues this season what is their bench going to look like and we knew that Ed Davis would be a downgrade on what they got last year from Derek Favors but he hasn't been nearly what he was in Brooklyn a year ago, so that's certainly been an issue. Davis, oof, 7.4 PR, 42% true shooting, and this is a guy who, like, only shoots around the basket, and even his offensive rebounding is only 9.6%, and it's gotten so bad that maybe it's even Tony Bradley time again. Tony Bradley, at least, uh, is giving them something uh, on the offensive glass and can score efficiently around the rim, so maybe the Jazz are a team that might try to make a move for yet another supplemental big. Men, but Dante Exum is really the only salary they can trade they're out at another first round pick so again we run into this issue of the teams that might really want to be making a move Lakers Jazz are really hamstrung in terms of picks in the future and matching salary
2: yeah and the Jazz are even in a tougher spot because I don't think they're as viable of a buyout candidate as as the Lakers in particular are so I mean even though there are a ton of bigs getting the right guy could be a challenge
1: all right, Danny, we will talk to you Christmas Day. Also, don't forget about the NBA cast doing that for Sixers and Bucks on Christmas. So please join us for that. Let's bring in Ben Dull. We'll talk a little Portland Trailblazers here. They are 14 and 16, 9 and 4. Pretty good to get right back into it. And they've gotten lucky that some of these other teams haven't been in it. Golden State has, has not been that good. Phoenix and minnesota have fallen off as well so blazers looking good now to make the playoffs actually in the positive now net rating plus 0.6 Ninth on offense and actually up to seventeenth on defense, which has been really key for them again to get respectable defensively. And you start to think, hey, maybe there's a way that they can get up to that top five level offense. They maintain this defense, and then they're kind of around around where they were last year. They do project to get the eight seed, forty one wins, and sixty three percent chance of making the playoffs. Ben, you watched the last five games of these Trailblazers. What do you got?
3: Yeah, I, th- I think it kind of has to start with just some general notes. On- on the schedule which definitely have to be considered in their slower start and and now as they've kind of stabilized they've had definitely had make ex- really just severe extremes without broke playing 13 of 18 on the road to start the season and now they're in a 12 of 15 at home stretch where they've gone eight of four so far and then they're about to go on the road in january and play some tougher games where they've got eight of ten so really it, it, there, there's so much so much to get into but seeing how that broke from the get-go i think you kind of had to brace yourself for what has happened here and and i guess the place to start is just how they've looked without kind of hoping to stabilize without rodney hood in the lineup at all yeah what does that look like because hood was having a decent season shooting the ball but uh, suffered that torn achilles so now so now they've got Baysmore in the starting lineup, a guy who's going to play for them a lot anyways as constructed and he's heating up a little bit. He started out a little slow from 3. He's a little under 40% on 46 attempts from deep this month and not having Hood as just a really solid offensive option, not that his usage was incredibly high. But a really good shooter and a skilled shooter can put it on the deck, one two dribbles, make a decision, or or be a guy to kind of yeah keep, but the, keep often the often to shoot yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> well well and this team right the the thing is especially at this stage like they have to be an off- awesome offense right so I think the thing with when you know you had hood out there both if he's with Damon CJ or as a as a guy with those bench units if one of one of those guys is sitting just having a guy that can do a little something extra that's kind of what what they're losing and and Baysmore. You know just if he makes his open shots you definitely see the effect on the other end where he's just a guy out there who's making some energy plays there's definitely value to that and you mentioned the defense off the top where they just you kind of hope you can kind of stay in this middle of the packet where they're at right now
1: yeah it's very interesting how are they 17th in defense now because they added carmyle anthony and they've actually gotten better
3: defensively uh, do you buy that i think most of it's just who they're playing in this stretch in this these these seven games these seven full games since hood went down there at 105.7 defensive rating per NBA.com. And just looking at who they played, the Knicks was in there. You know, they held them down. That's a big part of it. When they got Phoenix, Booker didn't play and Ayton was still out. Even the game against Minnesota, no Carl Towns. And one of those games was also against Orlando, who's continuing to, at least in that game, some of their same struggles continued. So I think it's more really a reflection of who they played. And once they were about to see some more games where they get some of those best teams in the West and even in the East, I don't. It, it, and really the thing, like, I think the Phoenix. Game showed a lot of that. Where if the, if if Portland can just be in their drop coverage and a team just makes a decision to get to a shot, they look pretty good, right? But if they have run into a team that with obviously superstar talent in the front court, or just a team with a bunch of shooting in the front court, and they're not going to switch as much, they're not going to be an awesome team executing multiple closeouts and that kind of thing. So I think that's kind of the almost a breaking point for them. So. Uh... I think another interesting thing has been the
1: rebounding. Hassan White's saying, oh, he's a great rebounder, but they just don't have anyone else who gets a defensive rebound on this team. Miller well, used to be a good rebounder back in the day, but that's not necessarily the case anymore. So they're definitely struggling, giving up a lot on the offensive glass. It's another thing where by not giving up shots at the rim, the system was supposed to really help you, the offense to take shots that are harder to offensive rebound, but that, that hasn't necessarily happened. I do think there, it's a little bit of smoke and mirrors here to be 17th they are eighth in e field goal percentage and then they are the other four factors mired in the 20s and so i do think they may be benefiting from uh, other teams uh, just not shooting it that well and you just look at the the names on this group i, I am hard pressed to think even with the stats juju that 17th in defense is going to be able to continue for these guys now I maybe mean, when Mer- nurkic gets back depending on how he looks
3: uh, that could change um what else you got on these guys well just to add a little bit on the rebounding i i, I do like Whiteside becomes an interesting part of that because to a degree it's not really you don't want to it's maybe not warranted to totally pile onto him like on his own on his own merit he's doing a pretty good job hitting the glass but the i think this is where it circles back to that point that's it's kind of been a big point talking about him for a while right where it's great if you're blocking shots but what about all those plays where you really sell out or you commit really hard and then a team like this where you just mentioned there's nothing behind him there is isn't another guy that's really going to clean up for them i think that kind of becomes a question where maybe maybe they can you know kind of tilt him towards a little more balance and that that can clean a little bit of that up what's happening in the rotation i know mellow has missed
1: a little bit of time with uh the knee contusion there's always the question of like the dame and cj stagger anything sticking out to you as far as like who's playing and when for these guys yeah
3: so with 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 bringing out mellow being out it brings an interesting question of what they're doing at the backup for they've got anthony tolliver who hasn't been making shots so far at a very high clip and then you've got nasir little who again can be an energy guy for them but offensively it might it might be a pretty big pretty big question mark because there are moments where he's just kind of in the dunker spot and that really clogs things up and as as reliant as they are to go pick and roll with their best guys it might help just to get another guy out there and then mario hazonia he's just kind of out there though i think it might be time for them to kind of tilt a little more towards Tolliver and I I guess I wonder what you make of that Gary Trent's getting a little bit more time and maybe having three guards out there they're really small I guess you have to ask how much how much Hazonia is really giving you by being a little bit bigger but just having a guy who's a little more aggressive and again just Hazonia just he's just out there you know he's not super aggressive with his shot there's not a ton he's doing to really add value offensively for them yeah and
1: uh we already know what he provides defensively and Tolliver you it's just he may just be washed at this point you know struggled last year in minnesota he uh, and hazonia have two of the lowest true shooting percentages uh, in the nba uh, among players who have played any amount of minutes at all and considering as we're talking about with some of the minnesota guys that their role is just to stand there and shoot the ball if you can't hit shots there and you know neither of them are amazing defensively Tolliver at least tries then they could use an upgrade at that backup for even with mel i mean imagine where they would be without him and people who were skeptical of that ad i didn't know how good he would be he's been in much better shape i think that's been the the number one thing that you were seeing him getting some dunks finishing at the rim you know we didn't see that level of athleticism for him the last couple of years in uh okc and in houston but to even just give them you know it's not like mel has been lighting up it's like 51 true shooting but even to give them semi-competence uh at that position has been such an upgrade over what they were getting um so that's i think I <laughs> think to say he's been a big part of their surge it's like you don't want to say he's driving it but he's at least not those other guys
3: yeah and there, there's something to be said too for mellow uh zach Lowe had in his latest on friday that he's setting 23 screens per 100 which is he said is the highest of his career according to second spectrum and, and one interesting thing with with the mellow setting those screens is he becomes a a helpful guy to unlock some more of that more of that off-ball screening stuff for damon cj because if Melo's guy helps out or that draws a switch mellow at least you know he's giving them an option to they where they can go to that that might that might unlock a catch and shoot for him it might get a small onto him and it's it's all relative for them right like him being an option is just so much better than what they would have had if he weren't there at all
1: all right i think uh that can wrap it up here for this holiday edition of the 15 and 60 uh, thanks ben for your contributions and we will talk to you all on christmas night very late uh, or in the morning of the 26th for a lot of y'all
0: till then